Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. And I want to ask you to open Luke chapter 13. I think I'm going to start there. That's not in the notes that are on the back of the bulletin. Um, But I'm not going to get through all the notes that are on the back of the bulletin. I'm going to finish this next week. Um, I'm kind of sandwich 4th of July between two, two Sundays. I want to share a message that the Lord's put on my heart concerning freedom. Freedom from the law of sin and of death. In the New Testament, it talks about three things using the word freedom that we've been given freedom from. And those three things are from the law, from sin, and from death. And we're going to get to several scriptures I, I want to read this morning. We'll see how much time we have. But I want to start with Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 13. Uh, and I'll begin reading from verse 22. It says, And as he, Jesus, was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? I think we have the same question today. When we look around us in the society that we live in, in the world that we live in, are there, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Notice the word strive. There's a lot of things that we strive for in our lives. And we often leave the most important thing of our lives to be the least priority in our lives or the last place in our lives. And Jesus is drawing our attention to that and saying the one thing worth striving for in this life is the kingdom of heaven because it's the only thing that remains. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west, and they will come from north and south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So this is quite a, a sobering parable that Jesus teaches. And it's not really a parable. It's more a, a, a metaphor of a master shutting a door used inside of a teaching to, to answer a question about who can be saved. And he says we need to strive to enter through the narrow door. So a narrow door is, is narrow in its size, 
So if you're too fat, you can't get through it. If you're carrying too much with you, you can't go, go through it. I don't know if you ever said this when, when you, we were, you were kids, but my brother often said it to me. Fatty, fatty, two by four, couldn't get through the kitchen door, is what he would always say to me. I did not like that, and I look at old pictures of myself as a child. I wasn't fat at all, but compared to him, I was fat, and he liked to tell me that. I remember one time, oh, I shouldn't go down that road. It'll take too long, but the kids are here. might enjoy a, a bullying story. I remember one time I told him, I'm going to lose so much weight, you'll never call me fat again. He said, it has nothing to do with how much you weigh. I'm going to call you fat all your life, and I was like, oh. Man, now my brother and I are great friends today. That's no problem. He just liked saying th things like that to me, like older brothers do. But so the door is narrow, and Jesus talks about that it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the, the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But I think there's another aspect of the narrow door that we see in this particular teaching, that the window of opportunity, as we would say, is very narrow. The time that it's open, when it's open, you need to get inside. Because if you think, I'll come later, Jesus says that I'm going to close the door. Just like the door to the ark was closed, the ark of salvation. And when that door is shut, you can stand outside and knock all you want, but it will be too late. And you'll be shouting from the outside saying, you know, didn't we eat and drink with you? Didn't you teach us? Didn't you do miracles with us? Some people are going to say it's told to us in another place. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. So obviously, knowing Jesus is not even as important as him knowing us. Do you get that? And we know Jesus, if we really know him, only because he first knew us. We love him only because he first loved us. So the 4th of July is coming up here in a couple of days, and it's a holiday that everyone loves. I've always loved it all my life. I love the firecrackers, hamburgers, or whatever you grill, the homemade ice cream, all those kinds of things. And I love that in Yarrington we have a really good uh, uh, fireworks display and uh, for several years now, and it's, it's just fun, and you can see it from my house. I don't even have to go all the way over there, uh, but, but it's fun. 4th of July is a fun holiday. Independence Day is a fun holiday. But obviously, we don't remember what 4th of July is really all about all the time. Because if we did, I think we would have standing room only this morning. You know, 4th of July, Tanya mentioned to me this morning, she said, I think Independence Day has become for Americans like Easter is for Scandinavians. If you go to, and we actually, have, I'm not saying we don't have very many people here this morning, but if you go to church in Scandinavia, anywhere, Sweden, Finland, or Norway, on uh, Easter, uh, either the church will be closed and you'll show up and it's just closed, or, or uh, there'll only be a few old people there, <laughs> because nobody goes to church on Easter, they all go skiing on Easter for whatever reason, and everybody goes to the lake for the 4th of July, or go somewhere, do something for the 4th of July, but I want to tell you, our country needs prayer. Our country needs us to be in church. Our country needs us to be praying and interceding for what's going on in our nation. We talked about this last week about a king or a country or a government becoming obsolete. If you remember in the message, we were talking about how David grew old and he 
he grew weary. In God's eyes, there is absolutely no doubt that the government in Washington, D.C. is obsolete. It no longer fulfills the function that our founding fathers designed it to, to fulfill and that God desired it to fulfill. Today, those who do evil in God's eyes, and all you have to know to know what is evil is read the Bible. Those who do evil in God's eyes, they are rewarded. And those who do good in God's eyes, they are punished. And so the country comes, or I don't want to use, I want to be careful how, how I use my terms, because country is actually the, the people and the land that we live on. A beautiful and a miraculous and amazing country that we have, and, and it remains that way. But the system of government, the, the kingdom, if you will, is in serious trouble. And I want to tell you, this 4th of July, I think it's very important for you to understand that, you know, when, when we come to Independence Day, we're, we're looking back, right? We're remembering the Declaration of Independence. I don't know when the last time you read the Declaration of Independence is, but read the Declaration of Independence. And if you read it carefully, you're going to realize that the grievances that our founding fathers had with Great Britain at that time, which was the absolute most powerful nation on earth, and that they dared to even stand up against Great Britain at that time is amazing. By all rights, they should have been destroyed and they should have died. We sing this song, uh, as he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. But if you remember, the words of that song are actually, let us die to make men free. And that the song comes from the Civil War. It's the battle hymn of the Republic. And they were willing to die because they felt and believed that it's better to be dead than to live in slavery, than to not live as free men. You know, Patrick Henry, give me, give me liberty or give me death. By the way, liberty and freedom are the, the same word. You know, we don't need to make a big deal about whether it's liberty or, or, or freedom. So if you read the Declaration of Independence, you'll be struck. Just go home and read it. You'll be struck by the fact that their grievances, the things they're upset about, we live in that same tyranny today. And way worse, you know, do we have taxation without representation? Oh, I get it on paper. No, we have representation and we're taxed. You know, but that's not true. We're taxed every time we turn around. You know, we're taxed on every single thing. We're taxed so much we don't care anymore. We're just used to it. We, we, we understand. Nobody cares about it. All the things that they were upset about, we're not upset about them anymore. So in a very real sense, you know, the, the, the government has, has learned, um, well, how should I say this? We're too afraid, we, we would be too afraid, I'm not even, again, I'm not recommending we do, but there's, we would be too afraid to stand up to the most powerful nation on earth today. And that's not Great Britain, that's our own government. In many ways, we've just drunk the Kool-Aid as back from the Jim Jones days. And we have a Kool-Aid shop right here on, on uh, Bridge Street, right between here and, and my home. It's, it, they, they sell marijuana there. But whatever the drug may be, they've got everybody to a place where they just don't care anymore. People just don't care anymore. So Jesus said that there's coming a day when that door will be shut. Well, you don't want to end up on the wrong side of that door. And I want to tell you that there has been 
powerful and very real prophetic words that God has confirmed to my heart, spoken over this church and over this place, going way back to the 70s and maybe before that, that this is a city of refuge. So when you're talking city of refuge, you want to be on the inside before the door gets shut. Because when the door gets shut, nobody else gets to come in. Jesus said that he has the keys and that whatever door he opens, nobody can shut it. But whatever door he closes, nobody can open it. And you want to be in church. You want to be in the presence of God. You want to be on the inside in the family of God before it's too late. And I promise you that there are coming days when it will be too late. You need to say yes to Jesus today. So go with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm actually talking about freedom. Everybody today thinks freedom means that I get to do whatever I want. And I want you to understand it's going to take me two messages, but what true freedom is. 1 Samuel chapter 16. But just remember this, okay? I know nobody wants to hear this, and nobody likes it when I say things like this, and you can get mad if you want to, but I'm going to obey God. <laughs> things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse before they get better. And the way, I mean, you can just study history. You don't even have to read the Bible. But a country, a nation, a government cannot continue to act the way our government is acting without there being consequences. And there are examples in the scripture that I could show you, the best of them, and we already talked about this, is with Manasseh. That God can even forgive the, the personal sin of the people that did those sins, and there can be revival in a nation. And, but God will still require the nation to answer for the sin that it's committed. People like Abraham Lincoln understood that and understood why the Civil War was so bloody. They under, he understood those things. He talked about how for each lash of the master on the back of the slave, another drop of American blood must be shed. Because those sins cannot go unrequited. That we formed a nation, and we said it's a place for the free, but we didn't have the guts to stand up and give freedom to the African nations that lived amongst us and that we had enslaved. That's just the truth, you know. It's just the truth. But we had a civil war over all that. So why do we still have racial violence? Why do we still hate each other and all these things? Well, I've I got a lot of political answers to that that I want to give you. I just want to tell you that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one city of refuge where it should not only not matter what color your skin is or what country you came from, but where we should actually celebrate that we are different and embrace those differences that we have amongst us. This is supposed to be a city of refuge, a place that is a home. One of the lessons from VBS is Jesus had a home and you do too. And when I heard John sharing about it in the celebration time, he made a really good point that that home is not a physical location. That home was his family that, that he had. Because the lesson that day was about how God spoke to Joseph in a dream, get up and go to Egypt. And he actually had to leave his home to keep his home. That's what it means to be in a city of refuge. That we are joined unto the Lord Jesus Christ and we're not locked out on the outside. We're not just church members, 
but we know Jesus because he actually knows us. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, I've been reading a lot about David and, Sam, and Saul and all these things. And uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, God has already told uh, Samuel that uh, he's rejecting Saul. And it says in verse 35, we, talked, we read this last week, as a matter of fact, that Samuel was grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Then look at verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? I don't want to name names today, but I want to tell you that I know in my spirit that God has rejected certain people from being leaders over our nation. And it's not just the man that's the president of the United States. God has rejected certain people that continue to go against his will, certain systems of government that keep on fighting and, and stiffen their neck against the will of God and turn against the will of God. He has, he has rejected them. Now, at this point, nobody knew that God had rejected Saul except for Samuel the prophet. Okay? Saul's still the king. He's still got the power. He's still got everything. But God says to Samuel, why are you grieving over Saul? There's no good at the 4th of July celebration grieving over the America that we lost. Because we lost that America. I'm telling you, I moved away from this country in 1993. And I came back every year or every other year. You know, it's, I had family here and everything, but I didn't live here all those times. And when I moved back to live here seven years ago, I was from that first day until this day in shock that this is still called the United States of America because it's not the United States of America that I lived in before I moved here. It's not, okay? Nobody's going to tell me, sorry for the, for, the, for the rant today, but nobody's going to tell me that my vote really counts or can change anything because I was here at the last presidential election and I saw, oh, suddenly the internet goes dark. Oh, we don't have any power. We don't know anything. And then when it all comes back on, suddenly somebody else is winning than was winning before. I mean, none of that makes sense. And everybody who just has enough courage to admit it knows that things are seriously messed up. Seriously. And that the person who is in the White House today isn't really there. <laughs> well, he's not. And it's, it's funny, but it's tragic because it's, it's tragic for that person in particular even. I would feel sorry for that man if I could. I can't, but I would because nobody at that age should be treated like he's treated and just be propped up with whatever they prop him up with. But he's not in charge. So even if I had voted for him, which I didn't, but even if I had, it would be a sad thing that the person that I wanted to elect won an election, but he's not actually in charge of anything at all, okay? We're in a state where we can see that, that, that the doors are closing. And, and God's saying, why do you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him. I've rejected that, okay? But that doesn't mean God has rejected the country. In fact, the exact opposite. God wants to bring a man after his own heart into power because God wants to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, of course, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon is not the fullness of God's kingdom, 
but it was a type and a shadow in the Old Testament of the kingdom of Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. And God wants to deliver America. God loves this country. And there's no sense grieving over what is lost. We need to look forward to the future. Okay? And so in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, he says, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king of Israel? And so this is how he looks forward to the future. He says, Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Interesting that God doesn't tell him who. You know, we are on a need-to-know basis. And God's only going to tell us the things we need to know. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Okay, so what has their state become? Their state has become a complete police state. Where there are spies everywhere listening to everything that happens. And Samuel says, if I go to anoint a different king, Saul's spies will know about this, and he will have me put to death. Is that not the country we live in today? It's what's happened. It's the country that Samuel lived in. And Samuel says, how can I go? So the Lord says, don't worry, God's got a plan. He says, take a heifer with you <laughs> and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, how, that sounds like God's telling a lie. Well, I don't know how to explain it to you, but there's such a thing as spy language. And God has covert language. And if you don't believe this, look at the two spies that are in the house of Rachel. And uh, uh, Rahab, I mean. And, and Rahab lied about where they were, didn't she? And the scripture says she lied by faith. You, you just gotta, if you immerse yourself in the word of God, you understand the difference. Because it's not a lie, it's the truth, actually. So God tells Samuel to lie the way we think about lying. But it's not lying. It's covert language. God has his undercover operators. And I promise you that today in the United States of America, God has his people. You just don't know who they are. And he says to him, so take a heifer with you. Say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then you invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And when you do, I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem, and all the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Why are the elders of the city trembling when they see Samuel? Because they live in a police state, and they're afraid that, oh no, Pastor Samuel showed up, he's going to preach one of those sermons, and we're all going to get busted because of it. And he said, did you come in peace? He says, oh, I came in peace. I've just come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Those poor suckers, they got sucked right into that. Ended up with David getting anointed king. Some of them probably died. It was like they were signing the Declaration of the Independence that day. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. The story goes on from there. So one thing I want to tell you about it, freedom is a free man, Samuel's a free man, is not always free on the outside. Samuel was not free on the outside. He could not just do anything he wanted to do. There were undercover operatives of Saul's that were watching every step he made. But a free man is always free on the inside. 
and a free man always does what the Lord speaks to him to do. So let me take a step kind of in a different direction. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 6. You can open it if you want. It might be printed in the bulletin. I can't remember. But Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. In Romans 6, Paul, Paul talks a lot about freedom. In Romans, in 2 Corinthians, and in Galatians. And we're going to look at several scriptures today and then next week. In Romans chapter 6, verse 20, we read that when you were, when you were slaves of sin... So do you know this morning that you used to be slaves of sin? What does it mean to be a slave of sin? You just can't stop sinning, can you? No matter what you try, you can't stop sinning. And you get free from one sin, but the only way to get free from it is exchange it for a different sin that maybe isn't as dangerous or as bad. But you're a slave to sin. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So see, you had freedom when you were living in sin, but you were free from righteousness. You were free from God's care, from God's love, but you were slaves to sin. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? None at all, except death. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. See, true freedom doesn't mean you're free from God. It actually means you're a slave to God. And a free man always does what his master, God, tells him to do. But the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 6.18 reiterates it. Having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So everyone is a slave, either to sin or to righteousness. And you can call yourself free and be a slave to sin, but you're not free. But when you're truly free, it means you're a slave to righteousness, you're a slave to God. You're a slave to love, God's love. For the law, Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I want to talk just a little bit about freedom and a little bit about law and lay a foundation for understanding this. So in Greek, there is a word uh, that means freedom. Sometimes it's translated as liberty, and it is the word yeleftheria, yeleftheria. But it, it, it comes from an adjective. Now, this is kind of rare in any language. Usually, adjectives, like in English, uh, the foundation form is the noun, okay? But the adjective is the foundation for the noun freedom. So, being free is the foundation for understanding what freedom is. And, and this is really true. You understand what freedom is when you look at free people. I mean, try just to define freedom. It's like a word like love. You know, it's so abstract, it's really hard to define. But you know freedom when you see it. You know freedom when you smell it. You know a person who's free that's really free on the inside. And so the adjective came first. And the adjective in the Greek language, in classical Greek, actually is studying how it's used, develops in the language much later than the word slave. And so the meaning the exact meaning of, of being free 
in the biblical Greek is not being a slave. If you're not a slave, then you're, then you're free. And so we understand this, that you're either a slave to sin and free from righteousness, or you're a slave to righteousness and you're completely free from sin. So over time, by the time the New Testament was written, there was some definition put to this. And the, the, the basic underlying meaning, just listen to this, is a free person is someone who belongs. He's someone who belongs. And because he belongs, because he's a citizen of a free country, see, the freedom is derived from the nation. Well, then we don't have much freedom left, do we? So maybe we need to be deriving our freedom from Christ because we have our freedom only in him. He is someone who belongs and therefore he is free to live his life at his own disposal. He's free to come and to go at will. And most importantly, he's free to speak at will. Both all, all the great philosophers, Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, and all others always agreed on one thing, that this kind of freedom is the foundation of a state. That a state must be a fellowship of free men. And we include women too today. A state must be a fellowship, an equal fellowship of men who are free. They can freely speak their mind. They can come and go as they will. They can buy or sell and they can do what they want because they belong to the state. And so the foundation of that freedom is actually in the law. But I thought we just read that we're free from the law. Yes, we're free from the law. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 7. We talked about this when we were going through Hebrews, but I'll just talk about it again a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says, you know, read two verses, Hebrews 7, verses 11 and 12. It's in this whole thing about Melchizedek and Jesus. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Okay, without getting into the details today of Melchizedek and Aaron and what the argument here is actually about that we've been going through as we study in the book of Hebrews, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that are really important from God's point of view. The priesthood, listen carefully, was not established by the law. God says that the law was established on the basis of the priesthood. Law, the meaning of law in Greek and Hebrew and what it really is today, law is a collection of our customs. It's all about customs. It's what we all believe and what we hold to be rights, customs, moral values. Our country was indeed founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic. But we are not living according to that anymore. Absolutely. 100% we are not living according to that. We are not living even according to the moral ethic values of Islam. Do you know that? Could it even be possible that God in heaven might think 
the Iranians are closer to my will than the Americans today. Boy, we wouldn't want to hear that. And I'm not saying that that's true. But we've rejected the moral ethic principle that our country was founded on. So if you reject what a house is founded on, you just go through and say, I don't, I don't like any of these bricks, and start pulling them out one by one. What's going to happen eventually? The house is going to fall, right? It's going to fall. So the house is crumbling because we reject the foundation. And what shall the righteous do when the foundations crumble, the scripture asks in the Psalms. They run to a city of refuge. They get in before the doors are shut, before it's too late. They get in the ark because that's where the salvation uh, truly is. So the, lo the, the, the law is given on the basis of the priesthood, on the basis of, I'll just use this word, the religion, on the basis of the God that the people worship. Okay, And then it says that when the priesthood changes of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. I want you to understand why our laws in this country have changed. And our Supreme Court is doing a pretty decent job of trying to keep this from happening. Okay? But you can see, readily see, that if, if we keep going in the direction we, we go, everything like abortion, just like it's already happened with gay marriage and whatever else you want to you name, will be ensconced in law, and then the Supreme Court can't do anything about it anymore. Okay? Because that's what the people actually want. Why do people want that? It's because we've changed our God. Our priesthood has changed. We don't worship the same God anymore. And I'm not saying all the founding fathers were Christians. You know, I'm going to give you a quote from Thomas Jefferson here in a little bit. As far as I can tell, the guy probably wasn't really a Christian in the way I understand that anyway. But they all truly believed in this moral principle that the Bible teaches as a foundation... Let me put it this way. Thomas Jefferson had problems with the miracles of Jesus because he was so scientific. I don't know if he was a Christian or not. That's up, up to God. But, but they had the same moral principle, the same underlying understanding that freedom isn't just doing whatever you want, but freedom is being a slave to righteousness. That when people are truly free, then they take the responsibility of that freedom upon themselves. The law of sin and death is legion. It's found in religion. You can be religious and still be a slave to the law of sin and death. You can be idolatrous. You can be an atheist. You can be a pantheist. You can be an individualist. You can be a materialist. And they can be from all different spectrums. And you're still enslaved to the law of sin and death. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is really, really simple. Do you want to hear it? It's summed up in two phrases. If you came to the synagogue this week, you would have heard it from the rabbi. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. With your spirit, soul, and body, love the Lord your God. And then Jesus said, and the second commandment is like the first, so love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus summed it up in what we call the golden rule, Matthew chapter 7. Treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. And that is the entirety of the law and the prophets, Jesus said. It's so simple to walk according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. 
Against this law, there is no other law. Galatians 5.20 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. These are the hallmarks of a people that are truly free. They are a people that love their neighbor as themselves. They are a people that walk in the joy and the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And a people that walk in love are a people who are eternally free and nobody can enslave them because they are slaves to God. They are slaves to righteousness. Go with me to Galatians chapter 4. And I'm going to end here in Galatians. And then we're going to take on 2 Corinthians next week because it's really good. But we need more time for that. In Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read several scriptures here beginning with verse 1. It says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And he's talking about the, the, the law of Moses. But when the fullness of the time came, because those are elemental things, by the way. Not to murder somebody, that's just an elemental thing. Every, every society that's ever existed in the world has those same laws. Don't murder somebody, don't steal from people. You know, but we were underneath the bondage of these things. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba means Daddy in Aramaic. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. At that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about demons. He's talking about demonic forces. Maybe you didn't believe the devil existed. Maybe if you did, you thought he had little horns and pitchfork and lived in hell. That's just perfect for him because that just kept you even more deceived. But you were slaves to demons. You did what they made you do and commanded you to do. Our nation today is underneath a great and dark cloud of demonic influence. We are in a time of spiritual warfare like no generation ever has been in the United States, and we don't even know it. We're just asleep. And the door is actually closing. And things are actually, you could read it in the book of Revelation. It's not even difficult to understand. It's all right there in the book of Revelation. In fact, the book of Revelation is so right on to the world we're living in, I find myself sometimes wondering, are, has all this whole seven-year thing already started? Or what? Because it's like we're living in this already. And we cannot afford to be slaves to demons in our lives. You know, it says here that when a child... So, a child, he, he may be uh, the heir to everything. Well, I'll just pick on Frank back there in the sound booth. So, I'm not a rich king, okay? But I got a few things, you know? So, Frank is my youngest son. So, you know, he's going to outlive every one of my kids. You know, I'm, I, 
I guess, you know, but there, there's, there's a possibility of that, right? So he, in, in one sense, he is the heir to everything, okay? And I'll pick on Sasha also, I'll leave Stephen out of it. But <laughs> Sasha, Sasha is the heir to everything, right? Okay, but you know, Sasha gets to drive a car that I own around and pretend like she owns it. And, and Daddy even puts gas in it for her. It keeps the air conditioner going and everything, right? But she gets to feel like she owns this car. And for all practical and the insurance, Daddy pays for that too. Okay? So that's great. Frank knows how to drive a car. Frank knows how to drive a stick. He knows how to drive that Jeep. But I'm not going to let him drive any of my cars on the street, am I? Not because I don't want to get in trouble, although I don't, but because I actually care about him. And I know that he's not reached the age of 16 yet, so he can't get a driver's license, right? Well, this just says that if a child, and this is talking about a rich family, maybe a king or something, if a child has grown up in that, in that home, he's the heir of the entire kingdom. But while he's still a kid, until he reaches the age of majority, which is established by the father himself, not even by law, it says, he is going to submit to tutors, he's going to submit to guardians, he's going to go to school, and he's going to be like a slave. He's going to have to do what the dad tells him to do, what the coach tells him to do, what the teacher tells him to do. Why? Because he's still a child. As long as we are children, according to the law, as long as we do not grow up and begin to live according to the love that we have in Christ Jesus, until we can learn to keep our hands to ourselves and treat other people the way that we want them to treat us and love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all of our strength, then we continue to be slaves underneath the law because God can't trust us then. But you know what I saw at VBS this week? I really did. I saw a lot of people, several people that I could mention by name. I saw them really step beyond uh, their limitations. And, and most people that were involved there, and the teenagers too. It was actually amazing to see the teenagers get outside of their own comfort zone and begin to minister to, to the kids. And I know that they got a taste of freedom, because that's what freedom is. Freedom is being a grown-up who does the will of God and takes the responsibility for that freedom. Because we've been set free from sin, we've become slaves to God. In Galatians 5, verse 1, Paul continues, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then in Verse 13 of the same chapter, he says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if that's too complicated and you don't know how to do it, Jesus made it simpler. Just treat people the way you want to be treated. Talk to them the way you want to be talked to. Give them the respect that you want to have from them. And you are loving them as you love your own self. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you be 
not consumed by one another. Thomas Jefferson said the price of freedom is, does anybody know? Vigilance. That's right, eternal vigilance. Paul said you were, you were set free by Christ for freedom's sake. So quit going back to the slavery. We've got to be more vigilant. We've got to be standing in prayer. We've got to not grieve over what was lost or what is right now or what's going to happen next. We've got to put less trust in our electoral process than we put in the process of prayer. And really be turning to God because God does miracles in nations and He works His will in nations. Samuel Adams said, the truth is all might be free if they valued freedom and if they defended it as they ought. Let's stand together. And we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. His body in this cup of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, this Independence Day, it's a day of patriotic songs and fireworks and family and food and fun. Lord, I pray that would also be for us a day of turning our hearts towards you and not grieving over what was lost and looking way further back than July 4th, 1776. But we would look way, way beyond that back to the day when you gathered your disciples to you and you instituted this meal that we receive now. The simplest of meals. The bread is unleavened because you told the children, your children in Egypt that they must eat the bread unleavened because it's the bread of haste. They have to hurry up and get in to the ark, get in to the salvation, get into the house with the blood on the doorposts, get in to the city of refuge because the door of the house will be closed and they can bang on the door as much as they want, but they will not get in. We need a city of refuge today, Lord. We need to be in a place of your protection and your guidance in our lives, Lord. And we need to have our trust put in you alone because a day is coming when the king of Egypt with his armies will be drowned in the sea, but we will be delivered through that sea into the fullness of your kingdom. This is spoken of by all the prophets. This is spoken of by you, Jesus. You told those people that lived in Jerusalem then it said that you sat up on there in the Mount of Olives and you wept over the city of Jerusalem. And, and you, you cried. And you said, I wanted to gather you unto myself like a mother hen gathers her chicks to protect you. But you would not have it. And so your house has been left empty unto you. And then within a single generation, the entire city was utterly destroyed and burned up with fire and the temple destroyed, never to be built again all these thousands of years later. Lord, I pray that we would be listening so intently and closely to you that we would fill our horn with oil, with the oil of gladness, 
and go forth to offer sacrifices of praise unto you and establish your kingdom, Lord, in our lives just by doing ordinary things in an extraordinary way, just by ordinarily loving our spouse, loving our children, our parents, whoever it may be around us, as we love ourselves. And that we would walk in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and be subject unto you, God, and you alone, and that that would be the source of all the true freedom in our lives, Lord. I thank you that you have made us free in Christ Jesus, that you have given us boldness to speak our minds, to speak from our hearts before you, Lord, before the throne of grace, that you've given us courage to take a stand in this generation and not to fear what may come upon us. In that very place in Galatians, Paul says to them that when I first preached among you, I was in great frailty of the flesh, great, great weakness in my flesh. And as we read in the book of Acts, that was because in order to preach the gospel to the Galatians, he ended up being stoned to death, beaten up. But he wasn't afraid. He just got back up, went back into the city, kept preaching, kept standing for the truth. And he took that all the way into death in Rome because you took it all the way to Golgotha, to Calvary's Mount, to die for us, Jesus. I just thank you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to abide in your word and that your word would abide in us. Take us back to your word, God. God, if there's ever been a time that we need to turn off the TV and be in your word, that we need to turn off the screens and be in your word, Lord, we need to be in your word and that your word would abide in us. And then we can ask whatever we want and it will be done for us, Lord. I just thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. And as we come back to this meal that you instituted, you said, this is my body which is broken for you. And this is the cup of my new covenant, that we would remember the covenant that we have with you. On the 4th of July, we remember the covenant that we have with each other as a nation. That's actually what the 4th of July is all about, that this is a fellowship of free men and women and we remember the covenant we made with each other, written down in the Declaration of Independence, in the Constitution, in the Mayflower Compact, even before that. But Lord, all of that is worth nothing if we're not in covenant with you. And so I thank you, Lord, for this body, this new covenant that we have with you, and that we are free in you, Lord Jesus. I pray your blessings on this bread, your blessings on this cup, we hope you as we the receive message. these Before together, leave, Lord. We want to remind in you Jesus' that if you want to continue name, receiving amen. updates on new amen. sermons, that you subscribe so to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.